Welcome into TYT, The Conversation. I'm your host, Adrian Lawrence, and I am joined by a revolutionary woman. She's out here doing everything. This is columnist for The Nation and director of Make It Right Project, Kali Holloway. Kali, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's been wild, though, as we know, with everything going on with the Trump administration fortunately coming to a close. And I know you wrote a recent piece for The Nation where you elaborated on Trump's strategy really being about leveraging psychological pain and Mm -hmm. mental terror. So, Callie, you know, what do you mean by that? Um, You know, I think that we often think of the trauma that results from Trump's policymaking as kind of this unforeseen thing, right? That uh, trauma is the result of the policies uh, that they put in place. But the reality is Trump Trump is actually starting from a a place of wanting to create trauma, right? And so that became a lot more apparent with some recent revelations about the DOJ and its involvement in family separation. Um, you know, Jeff Sessions and his deputy, Jeff Sessions at the time was the AG, um, his deputy, Rob Rosenstein, uh, were very active in pushing this idea that we should separate families um, and that we should separate parents from children regardless of their age. Um, and we know that some of the conversations that they had specifically centered on the fact that this would cause psychological trauma and psychological harm. The idea was that they would create so much psychic trauma that it would dissuade future immigrants. Um, So we have to think about the policymaking uh, of this administration as being rooted in a kind of uh, creating of widespread trauma. Um, It's not an unintentional after effect, right? It It is the strategy itself. And it's really interesting that you say that because I definitely feel like I've gone through a traumatic last three and a half plus years. Uh, just by virtue of the fact that we're at the whim of what seems to be a madman. And I know that in your piece, you had said that trauma isn't an unforeseen byproduct of Trumpism. Mm -hmm. And so how do you think that this experience of going through the Trump administration will impact us in the long term? I think that we are going to be seeing this for a very long time, kind of um, the after effect of the trauma that we dealt with. Look, we're a nation that has been at war for 18 years. Um, you know, 9-11 obviously impacted us. We had the financial crash. Um, and we've spent the last four years with a president who has created news at a breakneck speed. It feels like every single day is a new affront. This isn't obviously uh, where trauma began. Uh, I'd mentioned in the piece that there were two polls before the election that showed that specifically uh, black women were very wary. They were the group that was most concerned about the kind of outsized damage that this administration could cause. I know that when I was saying some of this stuff, people treated me as if I was being hysterical. Um, And it turned out that um, he uh, absolutely did everything that I thought he would do um, and beyond. Uh, So I think that there is going to be a lot of work that we have to do. I know that uh, psychologists, even before the election, the 2016 election, talked about uh, the increase in the number of patients that they had who very specifically related their anxiety and depression to um, the potential for a Trump presidency. Uh, Four years of this has has worn on all of us. Um, Social media hasn't helped. So, um, you know, I I think that we're all going to have to do Uh, a lot of work to repair the damage that has been done and that has intentionally been done because it's it's there to uh, fatigue you, right? It is part, that is part of the work that they are doing is is to make us tired, right? To make us exhausted. Uh, So, you know, in the long term, I think that uh, beyond 
uh, the next presidency for years into the future, we're going to be uh, dealing with the mess that this administration has made. Yes, very much so. And, you know, it seems that we're also very exhausted, even just coming off of this 2020 presidential election. Mm. And I know that you wrote an op-ed for The Daily Beast that was released on Election Day, where you kind of talked about white women as voters and the fact that, hey, they got us Trump, so they're not really going to be part of, you know, the brigade to get rid of him. And many of us were hoping things had changed, but then we got to see really with these exit polls that 55% of white women voted for Trump in this election, which was an increase from 2016. It seems that you had that knowledge and that forecasting. Why do you think more white women were backing Trump this time than 2016? Well, let me, let me say something really quickly. So that piece was released, uh, it was published on election day, but I actually wrote it days before the election because I, uh, I, I kept seeing these pieces uh, that predicted that white women were essentially gonna in mass defect uh, from Trumpism. Um, this is the same kind of thing that I saw in 2016. There were a lot of predictions coming out of, uh, I mentioned this, lily white newsrooms. Uh, where uh, people said that there was maybe going to be potentially the largest gender gap in voting in history, right? Uh, white women weren't supposed to get on the Trump train. That's the kind of predictions that we saw. And we know at that point, a plurality of white women, 47%, supported Trump. Uh, so when I started seeing these uh, editorials and these polls, uh, I, I knew that that wasn't going to be the outcome. I think historically, if you have any sense of history, you know that white women stand at a very interesting intersection, right? They are granted privilege by whiteness, uh, but their powers are diminished by uh, misogyny. Uh, but they have consistently voted for and supported white supremacy instead of gender or racial parity. Uh, so I did not think there was going to be a difference in the, this election. Sometimes you make these kind of predictions and you hope that you're going to be wrong. Uh, but clearly, white women looked at this administration uh, and all the destruction that it has caused, um, including to white women, right? Uh, and said that it was important enough for them to protect white supremacy. The benefits of white supremacy apparently outweighed the downsides of misogyny for them. Yikes, that is, that's a damning statement, but mm -hmm. it is a very accurate one, which is very unfortunate, but hey, mm -hmm. this is where we are. This and you had mentioned, are. yeah, exactly. And you mentioned misogyny. And so we know that white women generally have been condemned a lot more for voting what they'd say is against their interests when they mm -hmm. vote for Trump. But seldom do we really talk about white men being, mm -hmm. you know, and they don't receive the same level of rebuke for their actions. Right. So this time around, we saw fewer white men voting for Trump with 63%. But even so, why do you think that white men aren't getting called out as much or are getting the pass? I think that there is... <laughs> Sadly, I think that there is, uh, we don't expect much from white men, <laughs> to be frank. Uh, we don't expect for them to vote against um, their primary interest, which is white supremacy. There is this expectation that white women, because they experience uh, some version of marginalization, that they would align with other groups that experience it, right, um, as a way of uh, helping uh, do away with it. Um, I think we have to start thinking about uh, the project of white supremacy as a group project. Um, that uh, black, I'm sorry, that white men and white women are working on in, uh, on together, um, unfortunately. Um, that's where we are. Um, we have to actually, I think, one of the important things about talking about the way these things shake out in voting is that we also have to stop pretending to be shocked by it. 
Yeah, I, well, I would like to think uh, probably you and I are not shocked by it, but it yeah. seems that a number of people in society continue to say, oh, wow, I thought we were, we were post-racialism. Mm. But nope, not necessarily the case. And I do want to definitely talk a little bit about your work as the director of the Make It Right Project. And I know that was kind of just a limited campaign, but extremely impactful. And so can you share with people kind of really what made Make It Right different from other organizations? I think there were, we started, we launched in June of 2018. Um, and at that point, there were definitely local groups that were working on taking down Confederate monuments. I think the work of taking down Confederate monuments is often very localized because of the way that laws work. But there wasn't a group that was sort of forming the connective tissue between those groups um, around the country. There was sort of no national group that was sort of doing the effort around the country and trying to uh, connect folks. So we decided to pick up that mantle. Um, and it you know, it was an awesome opportunity to work with historians, to work with activists who were already doing that work on the ground, uh, to work with artists. Um, I got the opportunity to work with politicians who were uh, on our side, who were like-minded. Um, so, you know, it was just a really great opportunity to also go in and elevate some of the work that was already being done. Um, we initially had 10 targeted monuments. Um, four of those are still standing. The rest of those have come down. Obviously, what was a hugely impactful event uh, was the uh, resistance that we saw this summer. Uh, but it was um, amazing to just kind of see the way that people were galvanized around. Look, we have a lot of conversations about doing away with white supremacy and dismantling racism, right? And if we are not ready to take down Confederate monuments, which are, frankly, sort of the lowest hanging fruit, uh, then there is no way we can have a more nuanced conversation um, about taking uh, racism apart. No, you're absolutely right in terms of lowest hanging fruit. It's like we're we're going out of our way to celebrate the losers, the people mm. who are trying to uh, dismantle our democracy uh, only so we can advance racism. Like it makes no sense whatsoever. So I am very, very happy to hear that Make It Right has invested that time. Mm. And I know we don't have that much time left, but I wanted to ask you, Callie, how is kind of like the experience of being in this space where you are not only doing the activist work, but then you're also reporting on it or sharing your knowledge and information. What has that been like for you over this past year of 2020, which has been a year of absolute turmoil? <laughs> um, well, 2020 has been a little weird because a lot of the work that I was doing with folks who were organizing on the ground, there wasn't the opportunity to sort of travel and do a lot of that work because we've been in a pandemic for eight months, right? Um, that was pretty magic. Um, you know, it's been a lot more, I've turned a lot more to just pure journalism and just kind of highlighting their work um, through writing. Um, and I do believe that writing is fighting, but I always, uh, you know, doff my hat to the folks that are actually on the streets because I, I feel like a lot of change comes from there. So um, I've learned a lot of lessons, um, but mostly just, you know, trying to highlight what they're doing because I think it's absolutely critical to creating change. Awesome. Well, thank you, Callie. Thank Where you. Where can people find you? Um, I am a regular columnist for The Nation every month. I write a lot for The Daily Beast, and my handle on Twitter is at Callie Holloway, FTW. Thank you so much, Callie. Thanks for having me. Today, we welcome into TYT's The Conversation documentary producer and director Michael Hall, who just wrapped his first full-length feature film, called Surrender Peacefully, You Will Not Be Harmed. It tells the story of the 1971 Attica Prison Rebellion and retaking in Western New York. 
Welcome in, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. So I'm an alum of John Jay College of Criminal Justice out in New York City. So I am pretty familiar with the Attica prison riots, or at least so I thought. It seems that you have uncovered just the real story here. And I was wondering, how does the story that you are telling differ from what most history books or articles that we've read say about the Attica prison riots? Well, there was always this, uh, the state always denied that there, that they pre-planned everything. They always denied that there were personal weapons used. They always denied a lot of the kind of, of elements of it that really make it so egregious. Um, if it's not bad enough for you that they went in and shot 39 citizens of the state of New York, killed 39, they, they injured many, many more actually uh, with their guns. And because of this kind of lack of direct evidence, they've always been able to deny kind of the worst of it. So it's always been this kind of us against them, uh, he said, he said thing, where the, the prisoners, uh, the inmates who got out of who survived, talked about being tortured afterwards, talked about just all the terrible things that happened to them. And the state always kind of said, like, ah, you know, you don't believe those guys, right? Like, they were all in prison. And, and there's this very, just kind of their attitude and their language around it is always really kind of gross. And at some point there was, you know, so there was all of the criminal trials after the actual retaking of, of D yard where they charged many, many dozens of people with all kinds of crimes. It was just kind of this scattershot approach to try and keep as many people in trouble as possible. Uh, and then after all, almost all of those were dismissed, very few of them actually were successful. And part of the reason why is because they started hiding evidence the day after, literally the day after all of this happened, they brought, you know, they started bringing bulldozers into the yard. There was no way to kind of collect evidence, especially in kind of trajectory or, um, you know, bullets, those shells, those kinds of things that, that could give some sort of distinction of where did this gun come from? Was this a gun that was owned by the state? Was this a gun that was brought by one of the uh, state policemen or one of the, the guards, you know, on their own? And so there, there, there was just really no kind of control over the situation in a lot of ways. And they were always able to deny that. Then as part of the civil trials, um, because one of the main inmates was a guy named Frank Smith. He was known as Big Black. And he was the head of security during the whole thing. And, and when it started, you know, he wasn't a political person uh, at the beginning of this four-day event on September 9th. And then he was in the yard. And the story of how he ended up in the yard is a part of the movie, and it's a very kind of entertaining story. But along the way, he starts listening to all these people talking about their rights um, and the idea that they deserved human rights, even in this criminal place, right? And they deserve civil rights, even in this criminal space. And a lot of us haven't really been able to kind of make that swap from the idea that these are criminals to civilians or humans, and, and they deserve rights even... Uh, even while they're serving a punishment. Um, so he got in the yard and he started hearing all of this and he got very, it, it fired him up. And by the time, by the end of that four days, he really kind of uh, had a grasp of the dialectic that not many people can get in that much time. But it was a very, uh, it was a high pressure situation, you know. So after he got out, he participated in a lot of those things. Once the criminal trials were actually mostly dismissed or done with, he convinced one of the lawyers for Attical Brothers Legal Defense uh, named Liz Fink, he convinced her to go from defense to offense and to pursue uh, their rights, uh, their civil rights in court, um, where where we really codify those things in the United States of America, right? Our, our civil rights fights start in the streets, but they get codified in the courts. 
Uh, and he, he convinced her to push this. And as a part of that process, Liz, who was just um, really an attack dog, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't kind of slow her down once she got going. She always insisted that this evidence, that they hadn't destroyed all of the evidence. She said that all along. And people didn't believe her, you know, uh, but finally, actually, one day she found this cache of evidence. It's, a, a, I don't know, around a thousand photographs. There's hours and hours of videotape. And she found all of this evidence that the state of New York has denied. Until today, they still deny that it exists, even though I'm putting it on a website. I, I loaded a bunch of photos yesterday. They continue to insist that this stuff doesn't exist. And it has really hampered the truth of the story. In a lot of ways. And it's also hampered the ability for people to be able to look at it in terms of understanding patterns in American policing. Because, you know, they shoot first, ask questions later. They destroy evidence. They're willing to literally murder their own. They murdered a number of guards uh, in the process of taking this back. And then claimed that the guards were actually murdered by the prisoners, right? Which did not happen. So we have a pattern that we can still see today. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pattern because we've seen law enforcement on the streets out here, you know, illegally arresting people or shooting them in various ways, hiding evidence, lying about evidence. It's the same thing. It sounds like it's going on behind prison walls. And at least that's what went down in the 70s. I don't know how many things have changed since then. But one thing I did want to talk about, because you mentioned her, um, uh, Liz Fink. I know she was a lawyer for the Attica Brothers Legal Defense. And also, I know she died, unfortunately, about a month after you sat down and was able to interview her. And in her last moments, what did she really communicate to you about this project? You know, uh, Liz had, had been involved in a lot of movies, uh, documentaries and stuff over the years and books. And she, uh, she was not really that interested in, in them anymore. She, I worked on this archive for two years before my wife actually finally convinced her to sit down to do an interview. Um, so she didn't have a lot of stock in that kind of, uh, in that kind of, of, of expression of all of this, because she felt like you couldn't really contain it all in, in something of that sort. Um, what she really wanted was to see this evidence made available to the public. She wanted to see it go online. Um, and, you know, as someone who, uh, didn't grow up so much in the digital era, it, it seemed to her like that was kind of out of our grasp in a way. And I always said to her, like, no, we just have to scan all this material. There's a lot of kind of work in, in making it all digital. But the hard part is not buying a website and putting it out there. Um, but, you know, when she passed away, uh, I, I was in the hospital with her, like literally on her deathbed. And she's making me promise to her that I'm going to put this stuff on the Internet and make it available to the whole world. The idea being that people should be able to download it and, and interpret it and consume it and it not just be interpreted by a white guy in his 40s or by a lawyer who knew all of these people that that it, it, in order to really find the truth of this material, it needs to be approached by a lot of different people. And it needs to be approached by people um, from a lot of different perspectives, from every perspective, you know, um, not only the the directly affected communities in terms of um, what do inmates or formerly incarcerated people think about this? Like, how would they you know, how would their their experiences in prison compare to the experiences of the, the men who actually were a part of this? You know, because when you talk, when you hear about their grievances, you know, there was too much pork in the food. Uh, a lot of the guys didn't eat pork. There was 
you know, most of the guards were white guys from rural communities. Most of the prisoners were not white guys and not from rural communities. You know, this is a prison in, in upstate New York, right? So a lot of the, the inmates were from the city, you know, or, or near around it or Rochester, or some of these other kind of communities that aren't as white as Attica and, and the kind of counties immediately around it. Um, you know, their reading material was censored. Uh, their mail was all read on both going, both incoming and outgoing. It's just a, it's a lot of, of grievances that if you are familiar with kind of um, how, you know, our, our, our prison situation exists now, they sound really familiar. So I think it's worth hearing kind of how this stuff is interpreted by people who are experiencing it now, because there are still people all over this country experiencing it now. Absolutely. And, and we don't have very much time left, but I did want to kind of tap into what's going on now. And just earlier this week, SCOTUS issued an order effectively saying Texas prison officials aren't required to implement basic COVID-19 safety precautions at a geriatric prison facility where 20 vulnerable old inmates have died. And, you know, I know Justice Sotomayor and Kagan issued dissents, but the reality is, is that we clearly have a problem where we do not see inmates as being human lives. So what do you think must be done for the United States to finally see inmates as people? I, you know, I think that uh, I don't know exactly why George Floyd was so different for so many people around the country, because I think for a lot of people who have been interested in this and talking about it and, and especially listening to activists around the country who are talking about defunding the police. And I know that language makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but it's much deeper than uh, than it might sound on its surface. I don't think George Floyd was really much of a surprise. Of course, it's sad. But what is that much different about it than Mike Brown, that it seemed to have gotten so much attention. Um, so to me, it's not exactly clear what the kind of what the difference is and what that kind of breaking point is. But it is clear to me that it made a difference. I've had a lot of conversations with people over the course of the summer and early fall who are asking me, like, policing is really messed up. What do we do about it? And, and a lot of people who were never really interested before. So I think continuing to talk about this and make this information available to people when they see it, I think a lot of people do have the reactions to it that help them force them into a place where they are willing to rethink our safety. Absolutely. And those things need to be done. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All the photos are on atticamassacre.com. They are free. Download and use them for your own projects. Thanks.